Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. T- today's a, an interesting show. It's one I've really been looking forward to. Uh, my guest is Dr. Nika Jones-Tapia. She's the executive director of the Cook County Department of Corrections. A- and that is an unusual job for her to hold. She is the first mental health professional to run a large jail system. That does not seem like it should be a first in the year 2017, but it, it actually is. Um, her, her background is in, she's a clinical psychologist, she has a PhD in psychology, she was assistant executive director of the Cook County Sheriff's Office, she built the Mental Health Transition Center to help the mentally ill successfully re-enter into the community. And so she has a, a couple of unusual perspectives here. She She's a practitioner, she actually works in a corrective system, she's a mental health professional, and when she was young, her father was taken away from her and, and put into jail, we talk about that. Um, and she and, and her sheriff are bringing a pretty new perspective onto how to run a major jail system. The, the sheriff of Cook County likes to say that the Cook County Jail is the largest mental institution in America. When you begin to think of it like that, it really changes what you do. So, so this is a, an interesting conversation because it gets really into how do you run one of these systems? What are the different ways you would think about running these systems? How do people interact with them? What is the balance that, particularly if you're a mental health professional, you strike between treatment and trying to help people and also punishment and recognizing that there's a reason folks are in jail? So we get into all of that in this episode. As always, a few quick plugs. Please check out Worldly, our new podcast on, on foreign policy. If you're one of our wonkier listeners and you want to learn about about the world, not just America. I think you will really like Worldly. Uh, and as always, check out my other podcasts with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, The Weeds, and Todd Vandorf's I Think You're Interesting, where our cultural critic at large is long-form interviews like these with fascinating figures in the world of culture. Uh, but without further ado, here is Nika Jones-Tapia. Welcome to the program. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for having me. You're from North Carolina. What did your parents do? My mom was a nurse, um, and she is now retired. And my dad developed and and owned his own African art store. What kind of nursing did your mother do? She was a dialysis nurse. Oh, that's hard work. Yes, yes. Is there for you a line between that and the work you do now? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think she taught me early on the value of helping others. And, you know, I would often go to work with her and um, get to see some of the things that she did. And I think that just opened me up to the idea of living beyond yourself. And again, just wanting to see others in a better state than how they came into you. You've told a story about watching police search your home when you were eight. Can can you tell me about that experience? Yes. Um, So I was uh, pretty young. I remember my sister and I, we were in the house. I think we had just come home from school. And um, as children do, I think we were watching cartoons or something. And, you know, we lived in a trailer, a double wide trailer. And so it had this uh, tin like aluminum siding. And so we just heard the sound of someone beating all over the house. And so my sister and I went to the door. She's a few years older than I am. So she answered the door and there in front of us were dozens of uh, officers there and they asked for my dad. And, you know, of, of course, being my age, I didn't fully understand what was happening. I just knew that, you know, they took my dad. And I remember sitting there on the couch and having to watch my dad get arrested. But now as an adult, I think about what that must have been like for him having his eight-year-old daughter looking at him get arrested. And, you know, I remember 
after that happened, calling my mom at work and telling her, you know, they just took daddy. And while that was devastating, nonetheless, I know that so much of my early life experiences have molded who I am now. So I'm pretty appreciative. It sounds strange to say of those early experiences, because it makes me not only sympathetic to the people I'm working with now, but their families as well. But then I also understand the plight of the American family, particularly minority American families. What was your father arrested for? For possession of drugs. And was he taken away for some time or was he able to come back home? Yeah, he was gone um, for about two years. And um, even though he was incarcerated for those couple of years, my family was intact. My dad, we would often talk on the phone. I always knew that my dad was my dad. I respected whatever he said. You know, if I started to get mouthy or act up, then I knew I was going to get a stern talking to from him, even if it was via the phone. And, you know, every Saturday, my mom used to make Sunday dinner and we used to pack it up in picnic baskets and take it to the prison and, and eat family dinner together. It's not the, the, what I think people would, you know, believe is the typical American story, but it was our story. It sounds like an incredible amount of work for your mother to keep that family dynamic intact in those years. Yes, yes, it was, but much different than what I think so many families experience today. We had help. You know, our our neighbor, she was an older woman. She wasn't related to me, but I treated her much like a grandmother. She used to watch us when my mom was working two and three jobs. And, you know, she would make sure I had breakfast before I went to school. She made the best biscuits I think I have ever tasted. And, you know, it was just more of a community effort. My sister and I, we were into sports. And so we had coaches that were involved. And so even though we had difficult life circumstances at the time, we had positive, supportive, loving people around us that reminded us that we were valuable and we were going to be something. And, you know, don't get me wrong, at the same time, I had people, adults and children, that would often say that, you know, because you have these life circumstances, you're going to amount to nothing. You know, you're destined for a life of crime. And adults would prevent their children from playing with us because they felt like we were going, we were in rural North Carolina at the time. So the quote was, you're going to hell, you know, it's in the Bible belt. So that's devastating to a child. But again, I, you know, counterbalanced that with those people that were supportive. And at the forefront of that was my parents. Uh, I know this is jumping around in chronology a bit, but do you think it's harder today for a family to maintain that dynamic, to find that communal support when they have a member in, in jail or in prison? Yes. You know, I I think now, much different than before, just the dynamics of um, in the incarceration process, it doesn't really lend itself to keeping the family intact. You know, what the sheriff has done here, Sheriff Dart, is done all he can to make sure that the family remains involved in the person's life, even though they're incarcerated and not just the family. I mean, he's been the loudest voice with advocating for people that have had their voice taken from them to say they're still a part of the community. You know, a large percentage of people that we release from our doors are going to be released back into the community. So let's not stop their forward progress. And in fact, let's put them on a better trajectory while they're in our custody. And so unlike many correctional institutions. I think Cook County is doing it different, but, you know, I see where families are, you know, broken from incarceration. And I see that reverberates throughout neighborhoods. This feels to me like a place in our incarceral system that that we are unsettled on as a society because we prefer not to think about it. We're, we're, we're comfortable Maybe we shouldn't be, but we're comfortable with the idea of punishing someone who committed wrong. 
But we don't think a lot, and I don't think we have a theory of how comfortable we are punishing their families. <laughs> and a lot of the way things are set up, I think often about the incredible charges that families are charged to call into prisons, right? These three, four dollar minute charges. Mm-hmm. We seem to allow them to be punished quite badly as a byproduct without it being something we've decided to do as a society. It's just been allowed to, to come along in the, uh, in the momentum of, of the imprisonment state. Right, right. To add to that, not only do I think it's so easy for people to turn a blind eye to what is really happening in our justice system, but I also believe that people have the misunderstanding that the justice system works for everyone. And we hear now almost every day how there is a subset of our population that feels that the justice system does not work for them. Are they right? You know, I know that there are there are issues in our justice system. I see it every day. You know, I know that there's something wrong when you walk through the halls of a large urban jail like Cook County and the most individuals you see are black and brown. And many of them are young and males. You know, it's not just the justice system that is failing those communities, in my opinion. It it starts way before then. You know, I, I, I look at our schools. I look at what we're doing in our communities to hold people accountable, yes, but to also support them. And I don't see the supports there in many of those impoverished neighborhoods. And so we're already setting our children up, minority children up, and those that are impoverished to end up in a criminal justice system. When you were growing up after your father was in jail or while he was in jail, did you see the the police and, and the justice system as something there to protect you? Or did you have a different relationship to it than that? Um, I remember when I would go to uh, the prison to visit my dad, I was often pretty scared. I do believe that a part of doing what I'm doing now was rooted in a desire to conquer that fear. People that are in the uniform are supposed to be there to protect us. That's what I was taught early on in school. But to see those same people take my father away, of course, that was a conflict that started within me early on. And somehow, some way, I had to reconcile that. And, you know, at, through my own development, I just began to understand that all people are capable of good and bad. And I'm not going to judge the person, but I'm going to judge their behaviors. And so that allowed me to, you know, begin to take officers and criminal justice professionals as who they were as people and not who they were as professionals, if that makes sense. Did your interest in in psychology or interest in working in the justice system come first? Uh, You know, it's, it's hard to say. I did not, you know, really set out to become a psychologist. I didn't really set out to go into criminal justice. It found me, and I I believe it was truly God that ordered my steps into the profession that I'm in and the position that I'm in. You know, I, um, I say that because I never thought about psychology that I could recall in early childhood or in high school, but in, in, my uh, master's program, I remember I looked back at my senior memory book from high school. And in it, you know, they always ask the question, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? And I wrote in there that I saw myself as a child psychologist. I had never taken a psychology course. I didn't know what it was. So for me to articulate that at such a young age, not knowing, that's how I know it was God. Same thing with... um being in the position that I'm in now, I remember when I first started at Cook County Jail, I met a female sergeant. She was probably of like four foot five, and I was as tall as I am now, which is about five ten. And she looked down at me, if you if you can 
picture that. And, you know, she told me that I needed to figure out what I wanted to do if I was going to work at the jail. She said, this jail will eat you up. Any jail will eat you up. So figure out what you want to do and do it. And she gave me a book and I wish I remembered the name of it, but it was about a female executive rise to power. And it was an autobiography. And in the book, the author offered up a questionnaire And in the questionnaire, it was, again, one of those questions, where do you see yourself, you know, 10 years from now? And I wrote on a piece of legal pad paper that I saw myself being the director of Cook County Jail. And I did not remember that paper until I was packing up. I was, I had left Cook County for a brief period of time to work at a privately funded federal prison. And I was packing up my house to move back to Chicago as the chief psychologist here at Cook County Jail. And I found that piece of paper and I thought, wow, you know, I didn't realize I wrote this. And I thought that was my destiny. And, you know, to now be the executive director of Cook County Jail, you know, I'm very thankful to the sheriff. But I also recognize that had to have been God that put that in my head that early on and saw that through. One of the pieces of, of your story that's interesting here is that that was a, an unusual ambition that, to my knowledge, you're the first mental health professional to run a large jail. Yes. I, I, again, I did not see this happening for myself. That was a sheriff's vision. I cannot take credit for that. So, so tell me a bit about, before we get into to running the jail, about your, your path to it. You, you'd mentioned that there was a particular course at UNC Chapel Hill on risk and resiliency that had a a major impact on how you saw these issues? That was the first time, um, and I believe that was my freshman year at UNC Chapel Hill, that was the first time that I identified myself as an at-risk youth. You know, just reading the textbook and hearing what some of the characteristics were, I remember being able to check off most of them, if not all of them. And I was shocked. You know, because going through the things that I went through as a child, I did not feel like I was at risk because, again, I had a strong support system. So even in the midst of that difficult time in our lives, I felt valuable, valuable to the point that it did very little to destruct my self-esteem. And again, I attribute that to my support system. And of course, then you learn about all of the resiliency factors. And I, I realized, you know, all of the things that helped me to to become the, the person that would then go on to be a student at UNC Chapel Hill, which is a pretty affluent school. I thought this is something that is worth me taking a deeper dive into. And that's what opened my eyes to psychology. That was what made me want to really help other people that may not have had that strong support system that I had, recognizing that it only takes one person to change someone else's trajectory. When you look at psychology as a tool for helping people, what what is that toolkit? What what can a psychologist do outside of the normal context of individual one-on-one therapy to help people? What do you see in that profession? Well, it's, it's the study of human behavior. So you're looking at the decisions that someone makes And you're helping them to make sense of it. So then they can identify the types of decisions they want to make after they explore why they do what they do. So it it helps give deeper meaning to our behaviors. I think we, we, we're so fast paced in our, in our world today that we have very little time to think about what we think, why we think what we think and how it makes us feel. And how that in turn feeds our behaviors. And so as a psychologist, you can look at it on the micro level in a one-on-one session. But when, you, when you're when you in a large organization like Cook County Jail, where we have over 7,600 detainees behind this wall, you're looking at it from a higher level perspective. What is happening in our community that is ultimately resulting in so many Black and brown people ending up in a correctional institution. Again, looking at the behaviors of the community. And that's where I say that the criminal justice system and our society as a whole 
is really failing a large population. What are, what are the ways in which you think it's failing that population? You know, our schools, our schools, unfortunately, have been stripped of some of the programs that we know empower youth to, to look beyond their um, street, to look beyond their neighborhood. So, for example, when, when I was in school many, many years ago in, in elementary school, I remember having music classes. I remember having life skills courses that taught me how to make decisions. And I remember being able to have formidable discussions with my instructors and my teachers about, you know, life and and what I wanted to have happen. And you look at schools now and so many teachers, God bless them, they are, you know, only able to teach rote learning skills, if that to large groups of people that are at different educational levels. So someone is always going to be left behind. We don't reach our hand into the family the way that we used to do. We don't provide a respite for children. Children, especially in in Chicago, where we had one of our more violent um, years last year, children don't feel safe in a lot of their schools. So if you don't feel safe, which is a, a fundamental principle how do you learn? So that's one area where I see we're failing our children. One of the things I've become sensitized to in recent years is that in some of these districts and, and areas, there is just less distance between the correctional state and children. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in school, I was not necessarily a bad kid, but I did things that were illegal. I smoked pot. I screwed around. I was, you know, um, very, very soft, you know, vandal with TPing and this and that. And, you know, and I got caught once or twice. And there just wasn't an interest in pushing me closer to the justice system. People had a lot of um, indulgence towards me and they had a lot of indulgence towards the other kids I knew. I had every advantage you could want. And one of the things that that seems to me to be true is that there is a lot less um, mercy in some of these areas. There's a much quicker road, the the school the school to prison pipeline, as people call it. There is a, a lack of empathy, it seems to me, and a lack of just seeing kids as kids in some of these areas that seems like a real way of failing them. Right, and and you're you're absolutely right, and. If I may just drill down on that a little more, you know, you said you see this in some areas and in some schools, you know, what do those children tend to look like in those areas, in those schools? They're black and brown. Like, you know, I, I, I used to say, you know, in some areas and in, in some, but I want people to know, like, no, we're targeting minorities. We're, we are early on just what you described criminalizing behavior that is normal childlike behavior. And we wonder why, fast forward to 2017, where we have a large black and brown population in correctional institutions. Why do you think that behavior gets criminalized in that way for for these black and brown communities? Because, you know, somebody less sympathetic to this argument sit here and say, well, look, you know, a lot of the police in these areas are black and brown themselves. A lot of the city government in Chicago is black and brown. Obviously, not all of it. Um, who who are we talking about, and what are they what are they doing? You know, I don't have all of the answers. I I, I know that there are you know many levels of misunderstanding that I think for it misunderstanding may even be a poor choice of words, but I, I think there are many factors that go into that. And, you know, one book I'm reading now by Michelle Alexander, the the new Jim Crow, it it is helping me to define what some of those factors are because I could not really put my thumb on it. I know what I thought, but what she does is put research behind what many of us thought was happening in those communities. And I would encourage, you know, anyone to to read that book. And I'm sure there are some that would argue against, you know, many of the tenets that she is putting forth, but it all makes sense to me. 
you know, when we are, for example, talking about a war on drugs, we know that it was a war on black and brown people. And, you know, when we talk about some of the environments where, you know, policing is occurring more and, you know, unfairly in some cases targeting those black and brown people, you know, there are different policies in place that guide that. And I'm learning so much through reading this book. I have to take it in small doses because you really just have to allow yourself to digest it because it's fulfilling the need to know what's behind what we're seeing every day. One of the things I'd like to move us to chat about here is the relationship, particularly among young people, well, they're not only between mental health and personal responsibility and what we can fairly blame people for. And the way I'd like to set up the the conversation is this. Uh, We know that a lot of our behavioral patterns are heritable from our parents. We know that a lot of uh, our behavioral patterns have to do with the environment we're raised in when we're very, very young, if we're raised in a chaotic household, if we're not bonded to to our parents, if there's lead in in the paint in the house in which we grow up. And this is an inheritance. Our, our mental state is to some degree an inheritance, much in the way that wealth inheritance is or um, other kinds of resources. And yet we have these kids who we know have grown up in these really tough circumstances or we know have had a bad um, hand dealt to them in terms of their mental health state. And from a pretty young age, we're willing to say, you know what, if you won't sit still in class – or if you decided, or if you fell in with the wrong crowd and you've shoplifted, or worse, you assaulted someone, we're willing to say that really is your fault and you deserve to pay the, the full penalty for it. And on the one hand, I understand as a society why we say that. I understand why looking at it any other way is, is very hard to, to countenance. But I'm curious as a, as a mental health professional who works with an imprisoned population, how do you think about that? How do you think about what we can blame people for and what kinds of incentives we can set up for what they should and shouldn't do versus what we know about the ways in which we don't all begin with a, an equal hand in terms of our mental stability and our impulse control. You know, there are many ways that I can answer that question. First and foremost, I would say, you know, we should all be held accountable for our behaviors. There are consequences to our behaviors. But what we as a society have to take into consideration is that there are reasons behind the behavior. We can't, it's not a black and white, you know, you did this, so it warrants this punishment. Here you go. It's let's look at what led to this person engaging in this behavior. And when I say that we're all responsible for, you know, our behavior and the decisions we make. I'm talking about us as a larger society too. So with, with us knowing that there are specific neighborhoods that have increased rates of violence, then we know that individuals growing up in those neighborhoods are more likely to experience or witness or, um, you know, just have the, the knowledge that they could become a victim of a traumatic experience. Knowing that that happens on a frequent basis, then we as a society have to understand that there are trauma responses that occur. You know, and when we don't offer resources, mental health resources to the population that we know is experiencing trauma, then we know that many of those consequences are just going to escalate to the point of the the victim now often becoming the perpetrator. Can you, can you be more specific on what those trauma responses are? So when I, you know, see or or experience or fear gun violence in my neighborhood, which is a story of many of our children growing up in Chicago, I may, um, you know, shut down emotionally. I may stop expressing my emotions and not knowing how to express those emotions. And instead they fester within me. A lot of children, you see, they will stop, especially dealing with neglect and abuse. They will stop engaging with others and just become very isolative. And when you live in your own world, you know, you, you don't understand 
what your impact is on other people that begins that. And then I I develop a sense of my environment as unsafe. And then I, as a child, have to figure out how to make my world safer. And when I see other people making their world safer by picking up a knife or a gun, things like that, I begin to rationalize why that makes sense, which makes me more likely to pick up a gun or a knife to make my world safer. If I grow up in a world where I feel like my life is in danger, we are, you know, human beings that will automatically try to protect ourselves from that danger. Um, so it can become inward, you know, emotional despair, which we see um, projected as depression, or it becomes outward aggression, which, you know, we um, criminalize and those individuals end up in our custody. You know, we can develop psychotic symptoms. It can become so overwhelming to the human psyche that we just can't make sense of it. So those are some of the, the trauma responses. You, you, you develop, um, an abnormal conceptualization of your world. You think of the world as inherently violent. And, you know, when you are having what we call a normal response to an abnormal situation, how do we right those wrongs? How should we as a society think about what we do once that process has taken place? So there's one version of this conversation. We're speaking from a remove and, and thinking about this sympathetically. We think, okay, you know, these people have gone through something. There, There is a trauma here. There is a level of um, socialization into a dangerous world, into an aggressive world. There is a need to display aggression to simply make yourself safer on a day-to-day basis. And then if you're the person who just got mugged or had their home robbed or, you know, is afraid of the people who are on your street, then there's a very different feeling, a feeling of just get them away from here, make me safe again. This this might, you know, it's sad for them, but it, it is not my fault and I'm not the one who did this. So how does society deal with this? How should How should we think about it? On multiple levels. So for the adults or or the older individuals that are engaging in the criminal behavior, particularly those that have a victim, they have to come to jail. You know, that makes sense. It's a violent crime. Those individuals are detained. But we as correctional institutions, like Sheriff Dart is doing, we have to help the person to understand what led to the behavior and helping them to make better decisions so that when they leave our correctional custody, they don't continue that life of violence. And that has to continue beyond the correctional doors. Um, The other approach is to also working with children early on before they develop, you know, this, this inward trauma response or the, the, the outward behavioral response, you know, we have this wonderful thing called mental health parity where, you know, we try to articulate that mental illness should be viewed much like medical illnesses and there should be preventive measures in place. Yet we don't really follow through on it. And I'll give you one example. You know, we require children to get medical assessments when before they start school and at different periods throughout um, the their early uh, education, but we don't require the same for mental health. And I get it. I understand why, because we as a society have traditionally marginalized those that have been identified as needing mental health supports. So we have to, we have to set a different tone for those that are identified early on as being likely to develop mental illness not marginalizing them, but offering them the supports and the tools that they need so that it doesn't, you know, continue to fester and it doesn't become worse. And the person can learn to effectively navigate themselves and their world around them so that it doesn't lead to that criminal behavior. So just to summarize, dealing with those that are already engaging in the criminal behavior and helping them to make better decisions, absolutely. But also having early intervention prevention for children and families, you know, just to know how to, again, effectively manage 
your environment, how to um, access resources in the community. I mean, many of our communities don't even have resources. So we're already putting them, you know, in a in a one down position where it's difficult for them to see their way out. So we, we have to take a, a multifaceted approach to the problem. And, you know, hopefully we begin to see better results and go from there. You know, it it's not a one-stop shop that we come up with a solution today and that's just what we do for, you know, the next 50 years. No, we have to continue to evolve and we have to to work with the situation that we've created. And that means that while we start with this multi-level approach now, we have, you know, researchers that will tell us what works and what doesn't work. And we as a society begin to employ some of the measures that are identified I've been reading a lot recently on on the drug war and addiction, trying to understand the the topic better. And the the flip of what some of what you're talking about here, wherein people become aggressive and they commit violent crime, is that a lot of people who grow up in traumatic circumstance end up, particularly they don't have great relationships with the healthcare system, self medicating with narcotics, and we then call that a crime and we put them in jail, and. Um, they end up in this sort of cycle of trying to self-medicate, you know, falling further and further out of society, seeing what they use taken away from them, ending up with more problems, no job. How should we think about the drug wars playing into this? You know, I, um, I, I recognize that drug use is an addiction. But one thing I'm grappling with now is the notion that, you know, is are those that also sell drugs having a similar addiction cycle? You know, of course, we can look at it from a, a treatment perspective. I'm a, a healthcare professional, but I also recognize the the discomfort that many people feel with drug use. There was one article. I think it's a, a prison in Kentucky where it talked about the need to to jail people in order for them to become clean. And I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, I'm not sure that a correctional facility is the only place where someone can have a, a true relapse prevention plan developed and and establish themselves as drug free. You know, I I don't have the answer to that question, but I can tell you that we have to look beyond jail walls as being the the treatment facility. What, what and, did you mean? Sorry to interrupt. What did you mm-hmm. mean when you said that you're grappling with the question of whether drug dealing has an addictive quality to it? In talking to many of the detainees that we have in our custody, you know, some of them have talked openly about how it's almost like a drug, that fast money. And, you know, just knowing that you can go out there and and make a quick buck is, is almost like a natural high for them as they describe it. And just like you have to help the person to get employment so that they hopefully don't go out and sell drugs, you have to work on the mental aspect the pleasure that they get from that fast money. And that's where I look at it as, you know, the question for me is, is this addictive for them? And for many of them, I think they would say yes. And and so it's not just helping them to get a job, but it's also creating an atmosphere where they know on a daily basis, they have to recognize that, they have to make the decision that day not to engage in that behavior. And they have to keep that at the forefront of their mind at all times because they know that they're at increased likelihood of going back to that fast money lifestyle. Something you're making me think of is, is I've been reading a book recently called Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. And, and it's about the drug war. But but one of he's got a couple of interesting chapters on addiction. And one of the arguments he makes is that when we think of the idea, the concept that we call addiction, it actually has a lot of pieces bundled into it. And one piece is physical addiction. You can get physically addicted to heroin or physically addicted to nicotine or physically addicted to alcohol. 
but another is lifestyle addiction uh, on all sides of the coin. Uh, somebody who does not have much purpose in life can become addicted to the junky lifestyle. It's exciting. There are highs, there are lows. You're on these journeys to find the money to get the thing. I mean, it's almost like a it's a, it's a real life video game of sorts. Um, you can get addicted to the lifestyle of dealing drugs. And that we often think very narrowly about how to solve an addiction as a, as a physical question without asking why within the environment people are in, have they become addicted to a particular social circle, a particular subculture, a particular way of being? And how do we help ladder them out of that? In part, I think we're sympathetic to the idea of physical addiction, right? Mm -hmm. If we can if we can isolate the chemicals, that puts it in a different category for us, a non-moral category. Whereas if it's just a way you're choosing to live your life, well, we're not sympathetic to that because that's a choice, even though how we all choose to live our lives. I mean, you wear those habits in, you become very uh, dependent on your social world. It, it is very uh, addictive, for lack of a better term. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, one thing that you just said struck me, it, for some people, I don't know if they would describe it as a choice, it being resorting to selling drugs. I was talking to one inmate actually yesterday, and he was talking to me about how he ended up in our custody. And he said, you know, I can't get a job when I leave jail. And he's been he's, he admitted he said more. He's been to Cook County Jail specifically more times than he can count in his words. And I said, you know, well, what, why do you keep coming back? What's going on? And he said, well, you know, when I leave here, no one is going to hire me. I'm a felon. I'm a convicted felon. And I don't have the time to go in for interviews just to be turned down because I have three kids that I have to feed. And so I can't go to my children and tell them that I'm sorry, daddy doesn't have any money for you to eat, not for you to buy shoes, but for you to eat eat. He said, and I can't do that to my family. What kind of a man would I be if I don't have money to feed my family? And so he resorts to selling drugs. And, you know, I can understand some people may say, um, you know, well, there are other options. There are other options. Well, I haven't walked in his shoes, so I can't say that. I can say those options are limited from sitting where I see. And, you know, short of developing your own business, like what my father had to do. It's very few opportunities out there. And, you know, I, I just, I would throw that out there to the audience. Is it really a choice for everyone? The, the point you make about other options is an interesting one. And, and something I think about a lot, the way we have a system that recognizes the importance of those other options while simultaneously foreclosing them. Mm -hmm. As soon as we put somebody through the criminal justice system, We've made those other options a lot harder to access. It isn't to say they didn't deserve to go through the criminal justice system, but in terms of what society wanted for them, what it wanted from them, as soon as you have to check that box, a lot of those other options just got taken off the table. You continue to be punished. Housing options are limited. Employment options are limited. Educational opportunities are limited. You continue to pay for the mistakes that you've made. This is a good segue to a question I've wanted to ask you, which is, what is jail? What is prison for? What What is a society are we trying to achieve? Not what should we, but what, what are we? I think society feels comfortable locking some people away so that they don't have to think about them as their neighbor. I do believe that you know, it's the the other, those those individuals that I don't know, I don't want to know, lock them away so I don't see them. Um, those individuals that scare me, for whatever reason, they scare me, lock them away. And I can't say that, though, without saying, you know, I believe a correctional facility is supposed to actually help the person correct behavior. And I'm very thankful to work for a sheriff that actually believes that and does that. 
where I, I don't believe many correctional institutions do. I think we're getting there now because that's the that's the new conversation. You know, what we do for the criminal justice population impacts our larger society. But for many years and for many institutions, I don't believe that was the case. It was not meant to correct behavior. It was meant to just lock them up, throw away the key so I don't have to deal with them. I don't have to be scared of them and I can feel safe. I actually think I've asked this question of other people. I think that is the most persuasive answer I've got into this question. Um, so the, the reason I'm a little bit obsessed by this is that there's this old language that you can't manage what you what you don't measure. And we do measure all these things um, in the criminal justice system. But there's nothing in American politics in, in the discussion around these things where we seem to be focused on one measurement or another. And it is simply not the case, as far as I can tell, that there is pressure coming down at all times to see the recidivism rate going down and that we've structured everything around making the recidivism rate go down. Whereas if you look at our prison system and if you just were asked to guess, if you knew nothing about it, but you were just asked to guess, what were we trying to do? Well, you look at, well, what is the measurement we are increasing the most effectively? And the answer would be the number of people locked up. Mm-hmm. And so if you're just backing out from what you knew had happened, you would probably say, well, what they're trying to do is figure out a way to imprison the most amount of people. And they're doing an excellent job. <laughs> but you would not look at recidivism or um, the number of people getting employment, gainful employment after being in prison or the number of people who, uh, you know, pick your social indicator. You would not look at any of those and say, we've been in a decades long societal project who improved those indicators. You would, the only one we've improved, and I use improved in, in scare quotes here, is the number of people in prison, which suggests to me, as you just said, that that's really what we're doing. We're just trying to get as many people we're afraid of away. Right. Right. And, you know, I, that makes me think of the question, we, like, we know the right thing to do. We know the right thing to do to reduce the number of people that are detained in correctional institutions. We know the right thing to do to make our neighborhoods safer. We know the right things to do to create those social supports that we know our children and our families need. Yet for some reason, we're not doing it. And what's that some reason? You know, I think many people will have different answers to that. And again, that's where this thirst for knowledge comes in. I don't want to just be guided by what I think is the answer, but I want research behind it. And there are many, many people out there, very intelligent, that have a wealth of research um, that they could employ to get to the root of this problem. Um why isn't it there? And for the research that has been done, why aren't we using it? Do we want to make our society better? Do we want to reduce the criminal justice population? So this is probably a good bridge to your work. So you're the first mental health professional to, to run a, a jail, a major jail. How do you look at it differently? When, when you spoke to the sheriff about taking this job, what was your vision for it? You know, I wish I could you know, give you a profound answer on what my vision was. I had no idea that, um, you know, he had this vision. I mean, he, again, I give him full credit. And when he talked to me about it, about taking on this role, I asked him what his vision was. And he said, Nika, let's just continue to do the work that we've been doing. I mean, I've never met a law enforcement professional, a sheriff, of a large jail, nonetheless, that is committed to making sure people are have improved lives, not just their life in this correctional institution, because that's really his only responsibility, but beyond that and before they get here. I mean, meetings with him, you walk away exhausted, but motivated at the same time, because he wants us to do all that we can for the brief amount of time that we're here to make lives better. And so it makes my job very easy to know that that's my mandate. And so that's my vision that he's created. And, you know, we we know that with the 7,600 people that we have locked behind our walls, that that is, you know, that person plus 
many, many family members that we have a responsibility to impact for the better. We know our work extends beyond the jail. And that's so different from other correctional institutions. Like we've opened up two community mental health centers because we, you know, we mapped out individuals in our custody that had mental illness and where they were expected to return to based off of their self-reported addresses. And many of them were going to be returning to areas of the city and our county where we've closed mental health facilities or we just don't have enough of them. And so the sheriff said, I'm not going to wait on someone else to do it. Let's open it up. And he gave us the the authority to do so. And so we worked with some of our community partners and we now have a community mental health center on the south side of the county and on the west side of the city, which is unheard of for a correctional institution to continue to offer services. I mean, we have a van that will pick people up if they call us and set an appointment and drive them to their job, to court, to medical appointments, drive them back here to the jail for some of our alumni programs, because we know transportation is oftentimes a barrier for people getting treatment and getting access to jobs. You know, we have a a hotline where family members can call us and let us know when their loved one, whether they're in our custody or out of our custody, is having a difficult time and we can connect them with resources. I mean, we have many programs in the jail, but, you know, I, I think many other correctional facilities are understanding they have to have programs within the jail, but the work that the sheriff is doing outside of the jail speaks volumes. And, you know, he's even, we have a, a, former detainee that he's hired that now um, helps train correctional officers, that now offers programming to inmates in our custody. And you would never know that he was a former inmate of ours. He's in school now. He is our biggest success story. And he, like so many others, if given the opportunity, can make better decisions, again, not just for themselves, but for their families. This one particular former detainee that we hired, he's a grandfather. So you think about the generational impact. He comes to work every day in a suit. What that must mean to him to come back to a facility in a suit every day where he used to wear a brown Department of Corrections uniform, that does a lot for the person and for the man. And he can look his grandchildren in the face and his children in the face and say that I've made changes in my life, despite my life circumstances, despite what you know happened to me, despite the poor decisions I made in my past. Don't judge me for my past. Judge me for what I'm doing now. And he has a remarkable relationship with his family. This is, to me, it seems from reading up on, on what y'all are doing in Cook County, like a pretty deep, shift in terms of how you view the the work of Cook County Jail and, and the broader system. The, the sheriff has said that Cook County Jail is the largest mental institution in the country, which I thought was a really interesting way of describing it. And, you know, there, there's a study from the National Sheriff's Association and the Treatment Advocacy Center that said there are 10 times as many mentally ill people in the nation's 5,000 jails and prisons as there are in actual state mental institutions. Yes. So, I mean, is it fair to say that that behind this vision is a view that at this point, while certainly mental health services are not the only thing jails and prisons do, that it is a central thing they do and they need to be for better and for worse thought of that way? Absolutely. You know, we, um, as we continue to close mental health facilities and, you know, with crumbling budgets all over the place, we know that's one of the first things that, you know, is targeted as mental health services, then we recognize that the impact that we're feeling is from decisions that were made decades ago. And we have to think about the decisions that we make now, how that's going to impact future generations. And knowing that we have so many detainees in our custody and inmates in, in prisons that are dealing with mental illness, we know we have to provide mental health services and not just mental health services, but quality services. You know, we have to right the wrongs of, of many years and it's not easy to do, especially in a correctional facility. So we had to change the whole landscape of what our staff thought. So even before our staff start working. So they have 16 weeks in in the Correctional Academy. And out of those 16 weeks, 100 plus hours are dedicated to mental health training. 
And then we have an additional week for crisis intervention training. Again, because we recognize that this is not something that's going to be changed overnight. This is something that's been, you know, festering for quite some time and and long time in the making. And so correctional facilities have to prepare to deal with this for, for years to come. You know, we can try to change policies now, but again, we still have a population in our custody, one that's dealing with mental illness, but over the years, we're seeing people come in with more serious mental illness. And so we have to really be prepared and correctional institutions are not. What percentage of your inmates have some kind of mental illness? Those that have been diagnosed by our on-site mental health and medical professionals, about 30% of our population. But I would say given the the trauma that occurs in our environments and, you know, particularly again here in Chicago, that number is probably much higher. Many people here um, have learned to just deal with it. And many people have not been identified as having mental illness, even before they come into our custody. So when you talk to someone about it and and not forgetting the stigma that's often associated with mental illness, some people will say, no, I'm fine, when really they're not. And you start, as they're with us for longer periods of time, you start to see some of the behaviors that escalate over time. And then you can pull the person in and help them to understand why, again, those behaviors are starting to, um, you know, be expressed. And that's when you begin to get to the root of the problem and identifying that there is underlying mental illness behind a lot of it. And so I would say the number is much higher. Can you tell me a story in which someone who came in, um, you know, for, for crimes committed, where you all were able to diagnose mental illness and and sort of use that to to help address a larger life circumstance? Yeah, you know, one of them I described, the, the detainee that we hired, he had never been diagnosed with a mental illness. It wasn't until... he um, So we the sheriff started a program called the Mental Health Transition Center. With the number of people that we have in our custody, you know, it's oftentimes difficult for our on-site provider to provide, uh, you know, a wealth of resources to those that are deemed higher functioning. So the sheriff started to, you know, develop programs for those that, again, are deemed higher functioning but have a diagnosed mental illness. And so we developed this mental health transition center for people that had lower level crimes, had identified mental illness, and we bust them over to a different part of our jail. It used to be our boot camp. Um, and, you know, just to get out of the, the regular part of the jail and get over to the boot camp area, we had a lot of people that did not have a diagnosed mental illness want to sign up for the program. So we began to let some in. Again, they were low-level offenders. We believe we can help anyone. So we let some in. Well, this one gentleman, you know, requested to be a part of the program. And in going through, like, we offer cognitive behavioral therapy in the program for the first six weeks. And in going through the curriculum that we use, he was identifying with a lot of the the thoughts and the behaviors and helping him to work through those. He began to recognize and understand that there was an underlying mental illness there. And he had always thought, you know, I'm just I'm just addicted to alcohol. He never knew that there was something driving that addiction, driving that abusive behavior. And it was through our work with him that he was able to understand that. And he's now been alcohol and drug free for two and a half years. And again, working with us, there was another young man. He um, had more acting out behaviors. He was in our custody. I can't remember his charges, but it was a violent charge. He was about 18 years old when he came in, 18 or 19, African-American male. Just, um, you know, he was a behavioral problem at its best. I think he probably had the most incidents on our compound in one year. And many of them were against our staff. Well, the very staff that were working with him, our correctional staff, he was um, in our restrictive housing unit and the staff on the unit said, why don't we give him a chance in the program? I think he can learn from from this because they had been engaged with him and they think that they saw potential. And so we started 
um, him in this program with a group of pastors that were coming into the jail and to see him sit still for two hours and just be engaged in what the pastors were saying. He valued that relationship so much that whenever they would come into that part of the institution, those pastors, he wanted us to be sure to tell him he hadn't had any incidents. And you could see life just come back to his eyes. And because of that relationship he developed with the pastors and the program that he became a part of, he was virtually incident-free for the last six months that he was in our custody. Again, this was somebody that had the most incidents on our compound one year. And to go to have, I think he probably had two infractions in that six months. But that was something that we were able to capture. Again, he's not someone that I think we would traditionally identify as mentally ill, but this was someone who had grown up in a neglectful home, um, had been physically abused, and that was that outwardly response, that trauma response that we talked about earlier, his violence that he was taking on. Again, much of it against staff, some of it against the inmates, and it was the actual correctional officers that were working with him that identified the need to do something more for him. And look what happened with him. To my to my knowledge, he's doing very well in the Illinois Department of Corrections. As your background is in mental health work and, and in helping people solve their problems, is the punishment side of your job hard for you? Is the, the, the folks who they are creating a lot of behavioral problems, they are maybe attacking staff or you're trying to help them, but it's just not working. And, you know, there are parts of the prison, the jail system that respond to that by bringing down more force. Is that is that piece of it difficult for you to, to respond to things through punishment rather than treatment? I don't think they are exclusive of each other. I think you can, again, hold someone accountable for their behaviors while still helping them. Because the, the more force that we come down with, especially someone that has had an extensive history of trauma. I don't think there's any level of force that we can bring on them or any level of punishment that we can place upon them that would make them have a change of heart and change their behaviors. Because again, this is the, that's the type of environment they're used to. I, I punish other people, I get punished. And so let's help the person while creating a safe environment for our staff and for the person by creating opportunities, again, for them to understand why they do what they do. I was walking through our restrictive housing unit last Friday, and, you know, the sheriff has has changed the way we do restrictive housing. So, you know, I think traditionally inmates that had behavior infractions would be locked in their cell for 23 hours a day. You would get very little interaction with other inmates and staff. Well, when you walk through one of our restrictive housing units now, inmates are out in groups. They're socializing with each other. They're they're secured, but they're socializing with each other so that we minimize the deterioration that was occurring. We have staff that are on the tier engaged with them. We've increased the number of staff on the tier, again, to, to create a safe situation for our staff, but so that our staff can model positive behaviors for the inmates that have been used to having negative behaviors modeled for them. And in walking through that environment, I was talking to one inmate and he he has had several staff assaults. And he said, you know, there was one particular sergeant on the tier that he he likes because this sergeant talks to him. And so one, I take from that, our staff get it. Our staff understand that you can't just punish your way out of this. You have to help the person from the standpoint where they're able to be reached. And this particular sergeant knew how to reach this young man. And so I talked to him for a little bit and he said to me, he's like, you know, I heard one of the interviews you did and you said that, um, you know, your staff safety is most important. That means you don't care about us. And I said, well, wait a second. Staff safety is important to me, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about you. So why do you think when I say staff safety is important for me, that automatically means your safety is not? And so we had this dialogue and that particular sergeant that he related to came up to him and just the connection that they had 
again, even though he was getting consequences for his behavior, the connection that he had helped me to articulate for him why he's, you know, not outside of my realm of helping, even though my staff safety is most important. But the sergeant, again, was able to bring emotion out of him that even I wasn't able to do. And so I say all of that to say me as a mental health professional, I think, you know, that's great. Kudos. But what I see most impactful is how the correctional staff have changed their mindset and how they engage with detainees, even those that are being consequence for behavior within our correctional institution. So if if correctional staff get it, they understand that punishment does not mean that you can't continue to help the person and we can't, um, you know, punish our way out of this. Why doesn't the larger society get it? I, think it's probably, I know that was a long-winded answer. No, no, I'm that's sorry. a great answer. Um, and I think it's probably a good, a good place to, to end on as I feel like we will, not, we will not be able to answer the larger society question ourselves. <laughs> right. The question we always end this podcast on is what are three books that have mattered to you, that have influenced you, that you would recommend the audience read? The Bible. I start my day every day reading the Bible. I already talked about Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. I would suggest that the audience really take the time to digest all of the information that is in that book. And um, lastly, M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. Dr. Nika Jones-Tapia, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Jones-Tapia for for her time. That was a a really helpful interview for me. I hope it was useful for all of you. Thank you to my producer, as always, Bert Pinkerton, my engineer, Peter Leonard. We had Mike help from Sarah Geis. Thank you to all of you for being here and listening to the show. You are why we do it. Um, The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, home of so many great podcasts that you should check out. And we'll be back next week.